Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Order of the Solar Temple was a secret society that would go down in history sharing pages with Jonestown, the Branch Davidians, and Heaven's Gate. Om Shinrikyo and the Movement for the Restoration of the Ten Commandments of God are also mentioned in some of those pages. But is it fair to compare the groups? When it comes to incidents of mass violence and cults, perhaps it may be unavoidable. Because whether they ended in mass murder-suicide or a different form of violence, in spite of the striking ideological differences between them, there were some similarities in all of these groups that ended with such undeniable tragedy. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we continue, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing, related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. This episode also includes references to suicide and murder, including of children. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. The small French village of Pont-Saint-Esprit is best known for the mass hallucinations experienced by some 250 residents on the 16th of August 1951 that resulted in five deaths. Those affected described terrifying visions which caused one man to jump out of his second-storey window and break both his legs. Originally put down to a local bakery accidentally contaminating its bread with a poisonous fungus called ergot, in 2009 new theories arose about the CIA testing LSD on the town. In a completely unrelated incident 27 years earlier, almost to the day, Pont-Saint-Esprit was also the birthplace of Joseph de Mambro, who was born there on the 19th of August 1924. I found it difficult to come by much information about Joseph de Mambro's early life, but at 16 he became an apprentice watchmaker and jeweller, 
and by the mid-1950s had joined Amorque, the ancient and mystical order Rosicrucis, or Rosicrucians. Once a secret society that traces its practices back to traditions in ancient Egypt, today Amorque describes itself as a non-profit, non-religious and non-political organisation, with over 200,000 members worldwide, devoted to the investigation, study and practical application of natural and spiritual laws. In the 18th century, the organisation had close ties with the Freemasons, and both have grand lodges around the world as well as degrees of initiation. Joseph was involved with Amorque until the late 1960s, and then left the south of France after being charged with fraud related to bad checks and other swindles. Presumably running away from his troubles and looking to start afresh, he moved to live on the Swiss border. In 1969, he spent some time in Israel, where he had a son, Ellie, though it seems that Ellie's mother wasn't so convinced by Joseph's beliefs. He took on the presidency of the Centre for the Preparation of the New Age in 1973, which was an institution that practised yoga and relaxation. By 1978, Joseph had started his own esoteric organisation in Geneva, Switzerland, that he called the Golden Way Foundation. Some of the original members would end up following Joseph right through to the very end. Moving into a large house together, incomes were put into a shared account and all was considered communal. But in spite of these early devotees, Joseph was aware of his own shortcomings and worked out that in order to expand the group, he'd need to find a more charismatic figurehead. Luc Jouret was born in Zaire, then the Belgian Congo, on the 18th of October 1947. Threats against the lives of the Belgian colonisers sent his family back to their home country. The New York Times reported that Luke's brother Bernard described him as a gifted child and told a Belgian newspaper that he was sociable, intelligent and athletic, a sports lover who saw life as a competition. Involved with communist groups in his early days, Luke did his Belgian military service with the paratroopers, which he apparently was looking to infiltrate with communist ideas. He studied to be a physician and graduated from the Free University of Brussels in 1974, then worked as a GP, obstetrician and surgeon before becoming interested in homeopathy. Homeopathy is a 200-year-old alternative medicine practice in which substances thought to replicate a disease's symptoms are diluted multiple times in alcohol or distilled water, the theory being about treating like with like. In Australia in 2015, the National Health and Medical Research Council released a statement concluding that, based on their review, there is no reliable evidence that homeopathy is effective for any health condition. But in Europe, there are countries that do cover some homeopathic treatments as part of their public health services. By 1976, Luc Jure was running an alternative medicine practice, and he was becoming interested in other non-traditional approaches to medicine, including psychic healing. 
His brother spoke of a trip to the Philippines in 1977, where Luke was blown away by what the practitioners could do just with their hands. Quote, I was dismayed how someone so intelligent could be taken in by these stories. Luke married a French woman named Christine in 1980, and they had a child together, who sadly died as a baby. The couple moved to Annemasse on the Swiss border of France, eight kilometres or five miles east of Geneva. Luke was lecturing on various topics related to alternative medicine and making good use of his engaging persona. This was around the time that Luke Jurey and Joseph de Mambro's stories would become forever intertwined. The Knights Templar was a religious military order established during the Crusades of the 12th century, originally to protect Christian pilgrims making their way to the Holy Land. By the mid-12th century, the order had acquired a fair amount of military power, as well as a fair amount of wealth. It was headed by a Grand Master, elected for life, and had two classes, knights, usually from the aristocracy, and sergeants, usually from the lower social echelons. Then by the early 1300s, it seems that King Philip IV saw the Templar as some kind of a threat. He ordered the arrest of every member in France on the 13th of October 1307, and with the backing of Pope Clement, would eventually have 54 men of the order, including their last Grand Master, Jacques de Molay, burned at the stake in May 1310. Today it's recognised that the persecution of the Templar was unjustified, and based on unfounded allegations. Modern-day pop culture references to the Templar that you may have come across include The Knights of the Cruciform Sword in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, Assassin's Creed, and possibly Swedish power metal band Hammerfall. There are a multitude of organisations still today that model themselves in one way or another after the Knights Templar, including many temperance groups who advocate abstinence from drugs and alcohol. Facets of Freemasonry reflect a number of influence from the Knights Templar, and a body called the Ordo Supremus Militaris Templi Hierosolimitani, or Knights Templar International, counts amongst its various humanitarian and charitable member organisations, some which claim direct descendancy from the original Knights Templar. Jacques Origas started one such group, called the Renewed Order of the Temple, and Luc Jurey had become involved with this particular offshoot by the early 1980s. Joseph was by now married to a woman named Jocelyne, who was a little over half his age. In 1982, Joseph's mistress, Dominique Bellaton, gave birth to a baby girl who they named Emmanuel, though they pronounced it in the masculine, Emmanuel. Dominique had supposedly become pregnant by cosmic intercourse with one of the masters, who we'll go into a little more detail about shortly, which must have been convenient for Joseph. According to academic Catherine Wessinger, Emmanuel would become known as the embodiment of the cosmic Christ. When Jacques Origas, who was known as a neo-Nazi, passed away in 1983, Luke went for the Grand Master position at the Renewed Order of the Temple, and held it briefly before he was opposed by Jacques' wife and daughter, after which he was no longer welcome in the Order. 
he and Christine had already been initiated into Joseph DeMambro's Golden Way Foundation, though their marriage broke down at some point afterwards. Instead, Luke's interests were aligning quite fortuitously with those of Joseph, and so in 1984 they founded their own organisation, which they called the International Chivalric Organisation of the Solar Tradition, and which later became known as the Order of the Solar Temple. Luke had brought across a number of people defecting to follow him from the renewed order of the temple, plus there were those involved with Joseph's Golden Way Foundation. People attracted to Luke's messages and views through his lecture series might attend more through what he called the Amanta Club. Continued interest could see them graduate to an outer circle called the Arcadia Club. If they proved real dedication, they then might graduate to the Order of the Solar Temple but that would involve money, devotion, and discipline. And those who were seduced by the Order's belief system did have money. They were mostly from the upper classes, and included a mayor and an orchestra conductor. As academic Henrik Bogdan says, the members of the OTS were generally well integrated into society, well connected politically and socially, and affluent. Luke's lectures took him throughout French-speaking Europe and also to Quebec, Canada. They had titles like Love and Biology, though he would also speak of the environmental disasters that he believed were soon to come. Not too outlandish a belief, really. But once you got a little further up in the group's hierarchy, with access to more privileged information, you might find out that Luke was the reincarnation of an original Knights Templar and then that he was also the third reincarnation of Jesus Christ, and that when the world ended in fire, he would take inner circle members to a planet orbiting the dog star Sirius. Former member Thierry Huguna told academics John R. Hall and Philip Schulier that Joseph de Mambro said he had been many impressive figures in previous lives. Quote, De Mambro was Akhenaten, Moses, Cagliostro, Osiris. He used to say, You understand, in all my incarnations, I always had to fight, because my spiritual development was always so far in advance of the time when I was living. In the mid-1980s, a French anti-cult organisation called the Centre for Documentation, Education and Action Against Mental Manipulation labelled the renewed Order of the Temple, which Luke had formerly been affiliated with, as a very dangerous organisation. Their paper mentioned Luke Jure's full name in association with their condemnation. Luke and Joseph decided to move the headquarters of the Order of the Solar Temple to Morin Heights in the Laurentian Mountains of Quebec a 45-minute drive north of Montreal. The New York Times reported that former member Rosemarie Klaus told Radio Canana, quote, Jure told people that a great cataclysm is going to take place and only the elected will survive. He persuaded several people to leave Europe, to sell everything and invest in his projects. Jure thinks he's Christ, end quote. She and her ex-husband moved from Switzerland to Quebec, and provided Luke and Joseph with half a million dollars to set up an organic farm between Montreal and Quebec City, in a municipality called Saint-Anne-de-la-Parade, whose official motto is United in Faith. 
In their new municipality, a number of people working at the state-owned Hydro-Quebec company became heavily involved with the Order of the Solar Temple, after Luke was invited to give a couple of lectures to staff there. New members and those who followed from Europe, believing that Quebec's strong magnetic fields would offer protection from the coming apocalypse, were put to work on the farm, where the labour was hard and the hours were long. Daily life also involved endless chanting and meditation, specific rules for hygiene, and a low-calorie diet mostly consisting of vegetables, as the leaders believed that a modern diet was toxic. So, strict control and general levels of exhaustion. I know it all sounds pretty familiar by now to regular listeners of this podcast. There was another side to Luc Jurey, who was known to be authoritarian. A Swiss ex-member who spent two years with the group said, quote, People would obey him like machines. It would all be worthwhile, however, as this was where the Ark would be built, ready to take the chosen few into the age of Aquarius. Luke's lectures continued to be hugely popular, and he even had a series of five one-hour interviews broadcast on one of the French channels of Swiss National Radio in 1987. Joseph was looking after all of the finances, and was more of a behind-the-scenes COO, whilst Luke became the face of the order, say, more of a CEO. Both Luke and Joseph were known to partake in sexual relations with female followers, whether married or not, and whom one suspects may have felt fairly pressured and unable to refuse the advances of their leaders. Swiss academic Jean-Francois Mayer, who met Luc Jurey and attended some of his lectures, said that women accounted for at least two-thirds of the members. Luc in particular was said to require sex before delivering a big sermon in order to recharge his cosmic power. The two leaders would also break up marriages that they didn't feel were cosmically suitable told women when they could procreate, and even named the children themselves. Luke told Jean-Francois Mayer in 1987 that the cosmic marriages would unite the 100 families that would survive the end of time. The overriding aim in the solar temple was to reach a higher state of consciousness. Devotees believed that the order would produce nine cosmic children who would initiate the new age, and this is another reason why they would accept the cosmic pairings that the leaders would stipulate for them. Rosemarie Klaus, who had moved to Quebec from Switzerland with her husband Bruno, was paired with a different man as she slowly became more disillusioned with the solar temple, whilst Bruno became more invested in it. Aside from being distraught at losing her chosen husband, she said her new pairing didn't work because she saw the man with many other women, and those women with other men as well. Quote, it was very mixed up. Those within the order took part in certain ceremonies and rituals, which appear to have been influenced by Joseph's time with the Rosicrucians. These were often scheduled around phases of the moon and solstices. Like in the Freemasons, there were degrees, the three major ones being 
brothers of the court, chevaliers of the alliance, and brothers of former times. To reach each degree level, a member would have to undergo initiation rites. A text from one of the order's initiations later found in Switzerland included the words, Everyone must one day confront the great problem of death which alone gives meaning to life. You must be able to die to the profane world in order to be born again to the cosmic world. And since nothing is more uncertain than the hour of death, prepare yourself each day to be free, to leave this earth and to continue on a parallel invisible plane, free from all human and terrestrial chains which keep you prisoner of yourself. At the ceremonies and rituals, there were lots of candles, and members would wear robes and hold swords. Joseph's sword would emit sparks on occasion when he pointed it skywards. There would also be music and chanting. The Great Invocation, a prayer first published by Alice Bailey in 1937, was recited. Manchester-born Alice Bailey was one of the first writers to use the term New Age and published many books as well as co-founding a spiritual movement. One of her books included The Great Invocation, which is well known in New Age circles and has been translated into over 80 languages, with some variations where the words God and Christ are used. It goes as follows. From the point of light within the mind of God... Let light stream forth into the minds of men. Let light descend on earth. From the point of love within the heart of God, let love stream forth into the hearts of men. May Christ return to earth. From the centre where the will of God is known, let purpose guide the little wills of men, the purpose which the masters know and serve. From the centre which we call the race of men, let the plan of love and light work out, and may it seal the door where evil dwells. Let light and love and power restore the plan on earth. I'm a pretty sceptical person, and it all sounds like a lot of mumbo-jumbo to me, but it's worth thinking about the feeling that such surroundings and recitations might evoke in a person. Maybe you get it a little bit when you go to a music festival and watch your favourite band play amongst a massive crowd in the middle of the night, or if you've ever found yourself under the open skies during the northern lights. Even for a cynic like me, that feeling of complete awe and emotion is something I've experienced, in those times when you consider what it really means to be a human. In order to help with the pair's appearance of legitimacy – Apparitions of so-called ascended masters would sometimes appear alongside Joseph during ceremonies. Joseph claimed to be under instruction from these masters of Zurich, who he said were supernatural beings that resided underground in that city. The apparitions were part of a highly orchestrated production, with operatic music and hallucinogenic drugs may also have been incorporated. A former member later told a Swiss paper as reported in the New York Times, quote, They had the habit of putting drugs in coffee or soup. We were often given coffee before the rituals. Canadian academic Susan J. Palmer, who chatted to me over a coffee last year during a research trip that brought her to Sydney, writes of underground chambers behind hidden walls accessed via secret passages. By 1989, the order had reached its peak in membership numbers at around 450. But from their subterranean lair, 
the masters of Zurich would come to have a hand in bringing on the demise of the Order of the Solar Temple. Rosemarie Klaus, who had been separated from her husband by the Order, was one of the first to report the group to the Montreal-based anti-cult organisation Infosect. She also commenced legal proceedings to try to get some of her money back. It seems that she wasn't the only contributor worried about her investment. The organic farm wasn't doing so well, and others were becoming disgruntled. Joseph de Mambro's own son, Ellie, had also become aware that the apparitions of the masters were generated by audiovisual trickery. Ellie had been given a cosmic destiny within the solar temple, as Joseph's son, and Joseph claimed that he had been born of theogamy, or marriage between gods. When Ellie uncovered the mechanisms used to create the apparitions, he didn't keep quiet about what he'd found. A member named Antonio Dutois, who had been heavily involved with the AV technology, confirmed Ellie's claims, and about 15 members left the order as a result. Following this incident, Ellie was thoroughly disillusioned with the sect and with his father, and left the group, becoming estranged from Joseph. This must have been a huge blow, considering Ellie's supposed destiny. Other members chose to believe that even if the apparitions were mere illusions, that the leadership had created them for good reason. One excuse being that they were an unfortunate but necessary mechanism used to keep the weaker souls content, and they were able to maintain their faith. By 1991, the Order of the Solar Temple was on the watch list of other anti-cult organisations as well. There's evidence that up until this time, the Order had a survivalist viewpoint when it came to the apocalypse. The move to Quebec was based on a better chance of protection in the end times. In 1986, the Order had published a two-volume text named Survival Beyond the Year 2000. Volume two of this one might still be useful to the preppers of today. And let's face it, who doesn't have some kind of loose plan for what they'll do if there's a zombie outbreak? Starting in the early 1990s, in the Solar Temple there was now talk of something called transit. 1993 was mentioned as the year transit would be undertaken – which would see the Chosen One's souls move on to their next phase on Jupiter. The concept of this transit seemed uncertain as to what its mechanism would be. A UFO was possible. Followers just knew that they would be called, and that they would have to follow the order when it came. Then in March 1993, Luc Jure and two order members, one of whom was Hydro-Quebec employee Jean-Pierre Venet, were arrested for attempting to purchase guns with silencers, which were illegal in Quebec. The guns may have had a part to play in the transit plan, but the police were dealing with terrorist threats at the time, coming from a group called Q37, and the order was under suspicion. In the month of the arrest, there were also bombings at two Hydro-Quebec transmission towers. Though the three men got off pretty lightly with a fine and probation, pleading guilty in July, and claiming the guns were for self-defence, the incident didn't do a lot for the confidence of followers who had already been having their doubts. In October 1993, Joseph received $300,000 in three $100,000 transactions, 
which he deposited into bank accounts in Sydney with the Commonwealth Bank of Australia. Joseph had made a number of trips to Australia to try to set up a so-called life centre here, and was apparently refused a request to hold a night ritual at Uluru in the Northern Territory on the 13th of August 1993. The large deposits set off red flags with the Australian authorities, who informed the French authorities who began to look into potential money laundering. In 1993 and 1994, there were more defections as members saw their contributions going towards home improvements for the leaders, rumours of embezzlement abounded, and the so-called life centres that funds were supposed to be used for never eventuated. Scholar John Wallace has a chapter in Professor James R. Lewis's book, The Order of the Solar Temple, The Temple of Death, called Crises of Charismatic Authority and Millenarian Violence, The Case of the Order of the Solar Temple, and in it he looks at how charismatic leadership requires constant legitimation work. Jean-Francois Mayer contends that what was to come was based more on the internal than external struggles of the group and increasing dissent. Quote, Convinced of their own superiority, and insulated psychologically from countervailing perspectives, the leadership came to view any dissonant voice as unbearable, end quote. Both Luc Jurey and Joseph de Mambro were facing a variety of challenges to their legitimacy, and their answer to these challenges would be catastrophic. Jean-Francois Mayer wrote in his paper, Our Terrestrial Journey is Coming to an End, The Last Voyage of the Solar Temple, that Joseph was now sharing messages with his followers purportedly from the Lady of Heaven between the 24th of December 1993 and the 17th of January 1994, including, quote, If you do not try your hardest to escape the attraction of this earth, woe is you. And, it is now time to leave humanity to its deadly destiny. You are done with it. Don't look in the world for whomever or whatever to save. Close the door on humans. He also refers to a document that says, quote, The idea of the passage from one world to another might worry some of you. I assure you that you are going towards a marvellous world which could not be, in any case, any worse than the one you are leaving. Know from now on that after the passage, you will have a body of glory, but you will still be recognisable. You will no longer need to eat, but if you want to eat, you will be able to do it without earning your bread with the sweat of your brow. Your eternal body will be subject neither to ageing, nor to pain, nor to sickness. It seems that Joseph de Mambro at this time was feeling the effects of ageing and pain and sickness. He was also becoming increasingly paranoid about police surveillance, phone tapping, and feelings of persecution. In October 1994, Joseph's wife, Jocelyn, was due for a passport renewal. For reasons apparently to do with the number of addresses she'd had in Quebec over the previous years, as well as the authorities having the de Mambro name on their radar from the financial dealings in Australia, she was only given a three-month renewal. She contracted a lawyer to try to sort out the issue, 
and when he found out about the involvement of the authorities, he wrote to Jocelyne to tell her that he didn't want to represent her due to the ongoing investigation by the French authorities. This naturally did nothing to alleviate Joseph's persecution complex. A letter later found on Jocelyne's computer contained the passages, We are being followed and spied upon in our every move. All the cars are equipped with tracing and listening devices. All of their most sophisticated techniques are being used on us. While in the house, beware of surveillance cameras, lasers and infrared. Our file is the hottest on the planet, the most important of the last ten years, if not of the century. However that may be, as it turns out, the concentration of hate against us will give us enough energy to leave. It doesn't seem that much, if any, of this was based in reality. Joseph de Mambro was now 70 and his kidneys were failing. He had diabetes, was worried that he may also have cancer, and his illnesses had resulted in Joseph suffering from incontinence. On top of this, the cosmic Christ child, Emmanuel, was now 12, and was by some accounts becoming a bit hard to handle. She didn't seem altogether devoted to her future purpose, preferring the distractions of popular culture. Amongst the leadership of the Order of the Solar Temple, there was also increasing talk about traitors in their midst. The Order by this time had a fair amount of money and property. In some places, I've read the figure of $93 million sitting in bank accounts and they also owned around 80 properties worldwide, including chalets in the mountain hamlet of Grange sol sauvant a number of houses in Geneva, and land at Surrey in Switzerland. The garage of Joseph de Mambro's Geneva mansion housed Ferraris and Lamborghinis. On top of this, they had the Quebec land, as well as further properties in France. After spending some time away in Australia, on the gold coast of Queensland, Luke and Joseph felt it was time to move back to Europe. In an audio tape recorded in the first half of 1994, Joseph de Mambro is heard speaking with a number of the innermost circle of the Solar Temple about the upcoming transit. He says, Life for me is intolerable, intolerable, I can't go on, so think about the dynamic that will get us to go elsewhere. Elie de Mambro had moved on with his life. His mother had never been involved with the Solar Temple, and he maintained a relationship with her. But his relationship with his father was still strained. He told new friends little of his past, just that his father wasn't a good man. They hadn't really been speaking since he defected from the Order, but recently Joseph had gotten back in contact, and the two were tentatively feeling each other out. Ellie thought about it for a while and eventually decided to accept his father's invitation to visit for a long weekend and spend some time together. On the morning of Tuesday the 4th of October 1994, two chalets were reported to be burning in Moran Heights, Quebec. Then, just before midnight that night, the Swiss authorities were alerted to a fire burning at a farmhouse in Surrey. A few hours later, around 3am on Wednesday the 5th of October, 
Fires were also reported at chalets in Granges sur sauvain Two bodies were found in Morin Heights, 23 in Surrey, and 25 in Salvan. 19 of the 23 bodies at Surrey were lying in a circle, heads pointing outwards. One of the deceased had had their hands tied together, and 21 had been drugged with sleeping pills. Ten of the bodies had plastic bags over their heads, and bullet wounds were found on 20. Many showed signs of struggle. Most of those found had been called to a meeting on Sunday the 2nd of October, and had probably been dead since Monday the 3rd. A 22 calibre gun with a silencer that had been used at Surrey was later found at Salvant, indicating that someone had driven the 160 kilometres, or 100 miles, overnight, and participated in both incidents. Later, a car registered to 34-year-old Swiss Solar Temple member Joel Egger was found by the Solvang properties, though he was known to be a resident at the Surrey farmhouse. None of the 25 bodies found at Solvang had bullet wounds, but instead the dead had all consumed poison prior to the fire. In the case of each blaze, sophisticated setups involved electrical wires or telephones connected to tanks of gasoline or benzene, with mechanisms for setting off a spark. Two of the three devices at Surrey had failed to ignite, while the fire set off at Salvan burned with greater intensity. Many of the deceased were found wearing different coloured robes of red, white, black or gold. On Thursday the 6th of October, two days after the Quebec fire, three more bodies were discovered at the Morin Heights house. The three victims had been killed four days prior to the fire that killed the two people who were originally located after the blaze. The next section involves a little detail that some might prefer to skip over, including the murder of a small child. I'm going to mention some disturbing information as it feeds into the extent of the beliefs of the devotees who carried out this act, and the character of Joseph de Mambro, but do skip ahead about a minute if you don't want to hear this. The three people murdered were a couple and their three-month-old child, whose bodies were then hidden in a closet. These were the remains of Tony Dutois, who had backed up Joseph's son Ellie's claims of holographic trickery with the Ascended Masters, his wife Nikki Robinson Dutois, and their baby Christopher Emmanuel. Joseph Tamambro had been especially mad that after defecting, Tony had given his son the name Emmanuel, which was reserved for Joseph's cosmic child Emmanuel. He then decided that the baby Christopher Emmanuel was the Antichrist. Joseph told his followers that as the Antichrist, the child would need to be killed with a stake through the heart. The coroner's report showed that the baby had been stabbed with both a stake and a knife, and his parents had sustained multiple knife wounds. Tony Dutois had been stabbed over 50 times, had also been hit in the head with a baseball bat, and had defensive wounds on his hands. He had clearly put up a fight. Nikki's stab wounds were also numerous, and included one in each breast. The murderers of the Dutois family were found to be the fanatical Joel Egger, whose car had been driven between the Siri and Salvan properties, and Joseph de Mambro's mistress, Dominique Bellaton. This was based on evidence collected in the Dutois family car that had been stolen and driven to Mirabel Airport for Joel and Dominique to catch a flight from Montreal back to Switzerland. 
The Dutois had been lured to the house to catch up with Dominique, who they considered as an old friend. The couple who had perished in the fire at Morin Heights four days later, Colette and Jerry Genoux, were thought to have witnessed the killings, cleaned up the scene in the basement, then set up the incendiary device. The Genoux took sleeping pills and knocked themselves out for the fire to take their lives. They were found with medallions around their necks, engraved with the initials T.S., thought to stand for Temple Solaire. Herman Delorme was the third man who was arrested in March of 1993 for purchasing guns with silencers at Luke's behest. He spoke to CBC News on October the 6th and said his arrest had alienated him from the sect, though he felt fortunate now to have escaped the violence. He said there was an intense sense of belonging and the danger was in starting to believe that you were different and special, that members would lose touch with reality. When he was asked about some of the initiation rituals in the cult, he continued to maintain his vows of secrecy. The total number dead was 53. Back in 1310, 54 men of the Knights Templar had been burnt at the stake. In 1994, Thierry Huguna was meant to be the 54th, lured to one of the houses by Joseph with promises of funds ready to be returned. When he smelled gas, he panicked and fled. Thierry got away with his life. On Friday the 7th of October, the Swiss authorities put out a warrant for the arrest of Luc Juret and Joseph de Mambro, as their investigation showed that many of the deaths were not suicides, but murders. They suspected that the two had absconded overseas with all of the sect's money. By Sunday the 9th of October, they knew, however, that Joseph de Mambro was one of the bodies at Grange de Sauvain. Joel Egger's body was also identified amongst the Salvan deceased, as was Joseph's mistress Dominique Belaton and his wife Jocelyn. By Friday the 14th of October, they had identified Luc Juret through his dental records. He was 46 years old. On the final day of his life, Joseph de Mumbro had given a letter to one of the surviving members that included the words, quote, Following the tragic transit at Suri, we insist on specifying, in the name of the Rosen Cross, that we deplore and totally disassociate ourselves from the barbarous, incompetent and aberrant conduct of Dr. Luc Juret. He is the cause of veritable carnage. It seems the relationship between the two leaders had broken down as well. At a news conference on the 9th of October, Magistrate André Piller said, We spoke at first of a collective suicide. We can today affirm that for certain cases it was not suicide, but murder. One of the people found to have been murdered was Joseph de Mumbro's son, Ellie. He had likely been held captive for days, drugged and eventually given a lethal injection before being left alone in a room for the fire to take his remains. He too had to be identified by his dental records. Ellie was just 24 years old. It is generally understood that a number of the innermost circle agreed to the method of transit and voluntarily died by suicide, but that some of the others were murdered, framed as needing assistance to participate in the transit, or children who could not agree. Those viewed as traitors, however, were most certainly murdered, with no such reasoning applied. The detailed investigation by the Swiss authorities came to the conclusion that most of those found at Syria had been murdered, and half of those found at Salvant had voluntarily committed suicide. 
Luke and Joseph had arranged for four documents to be sent to a number of international media outlets, as well as the academic Jean-Francois Mayer, after their death, as the order's very last message. One included the words, It is with unfathomable love, pure joy, and no regret that we leave this world. Men, do not cry for our fate, but cry for your own. A letter to the French Minister for the Interior, Charles Pasqua, included the words, It behooves us, before we leave these stinking terrestrial plains, to reduce certain traitors to silence. Luke and Joseph had hoped that the fires would consume all materials related to their sect. But with some of the incendiary devices failing to ignite, a number of documents, including video and audio tapes, were left for investigators to find. The Swiss authorities came across a tape that held the following exchange. Joseph. People have beaten us to the punch, you know. Luke. Well, yeah, Waco beat us to the punch. Joseph. In my opinion, we should have gone six months before them. What we'll do will be even more spectacular. James R. Lewis looks at the intersection of violence and new religious movements across the murder-suicides of the Order of the Solar Temple, Jim Jones's People's Temple and Heaven's Gate, in his 2013 paper whose title you might like as a listener of this podcast. It's called Sects and Violence, the Standard Model of New Religious Violence. Lewis separates out these three groups from Om Shunrikyo and the Branch Davidians, which we covered on this podcast in Season 1, Episodes 3 and 8, in that these three descended into a violence that he suggests was related to the fact that their leaders were already concerned about their failing health and nearness to death. Lewis presents seven criteria that he sees the groups as sharing. 1. Absolute intolerance of dissenting views. 2. Members must be totally committed. 3. Exaggerated paranoia about external threats. 4. Leader isolates him, herself, or the entire group from the non-believing world. 5. Leader's health is failing, in a major way, not just a transitory sickness, or... Alternately, the leader believes he or she is dying. 6. There is no successor and no steps are being taken to provide a successor. Or, alternately, succession plans have been frustrated. And 7. The group is either stagnant or declining, with no realistic hopes for future expansion. The groups all differ in their ideologies in many significant ways but it seems to me that some of these criteria could also apply to a number of organisations we've looked at in this podcast too. The Ugandan sect, the Movement for the Restoration of the Ten Commandments of God, which we looked at in episode 2 of season 1, appears to have met these criteria before its demise. Henrik Bogdan's chapter, Explaining the Murder-Suicides of the Order of the Solar Temple, a Survey of Hypotheses, was included in James R. Lewis's book, Violence and New Religious Movements, and Bogdan points out that, quote, 
These three forms of ideology give witness to three highly different forms of worldview and soteriology, and thus one is forced to question the often assumed similarities of these groups' ideologies and their import to the understanding of the subsequent collective suicides. I definitely see the point that correlation does not equal causation, but I think it's far more dangerous to turn a blind eye to such similarities if they could indicate that a group may be heading towards violence. Academic Massimo Introvigne, in 1995, called it a faulty interpretation of society in comparing the order of the Solar Temple with events at Waco and Jonestown. This, even though Luc Jarret and Joseph de Mambro themselves are on recording as having spoken about Waco beating them to the punch. Introvigne mostly underlines the important difference between the groups as being the class of people who became members – which, as you may know by now, I'm not so sure has that much bearing on who becomes attracted to cults. He did later say in a 2001 paper, quote, The question, however, remains of why, faced with opposition and even outright persecution, some groups react by resorting to violence, while in others cooler tempers prevail. What do groups such as the Solar Temple, Om Shinrikyo, Heaven's Gate, and the Restoration of the Ten Commandments of God have in common? What features, if any, do they share that are not shared with hundreds of other new religious movements throughout the world? The question is obviously of crucial importance for law enforcement agencies. If you only read one thing related to this story, and as usual all my sources will be listed in the show notes, I would recommend you read an article entitled Cults, The One Thing I Will Never Write About by fiction author Hannah Mary McKinnon. She describes her pain and anguish at losing her best friend to a cult that can only really be the Order of the Solar Temple, and it is a heartbreaking reminder of the human toll of these events. The question that I keep returning to in researching various groups for this podcast and in speaking to ex-members is how much did the leadership really believe what they were telling their followers and how much was control and manipulation? Jean-Francois Mayer says, quote, De Mambro acted at times like a common swindler, but he very likely remained convinced of his message and mission until the end. Parts of the story of the Order of the Solar Temple prompt further questions. Why would they have made statements to media outlets about the transit if they were heading off to the next level, over to Jupiter? Does this indicate that their reputation on Earth still mattered to them, and perhaps they weren't fully convinced of their higher power? Otherwise, what was their need to justify and explain their actions? To leave behind a legacy? Certainly in the case of the Order of the Solar Temple, many followers believed fully in what their leaders were telling them. And sadly, the story did not end with the deaths of 1993. On the 23rd of December 1995, 16 people were found dead in a clearing in the snowy woods of the Vercors Mountains in France. Three were children, and those were considered murders, while the 13 adults appeared to have died by suicide. All had been killed with firearms, and the bodies were arranged in a circle with their feet pointing towards a fire in the centre. Michel Tabachnik, 
a Swiss orchestral conductor who had kept on the periphery of the order and survived the various incidents, was later tried on charges of criminal conspiracy related to these deaths, and had been for the earlier deaths as well. At one of his trials in 2001, Evelyn Brunner-Belleton, the wife of Dominique Belleton's father Roland, told the court that she'd overheard another member say to Joseph de Mambro that for any who disagreed with the mode of transit, we'll take charge of making them commit suicide. Michel Tabachnik was not convicted on any of the charges. Then on the 22nd of March, 1997, five more adherents took their lives in Saint-Casimir, Quebec. This was around the same time that the 39 members of Heaven's Gate also took their lives in San Diego, believing that they would be taken by UFO to the next level of existence. A couple, the wife's mother, and two others that included Bruno Klaus, the former husband of Rosemarie Klaus, who had been separated from him by the Order and had reported the Solar Temple to Infosect, were now dead. They rigged up a propane tank and used gasoline to ignite their house. Four were found upstairs with their bodies in the shape of a cross. They spared three teenage children who told their parents that they didn't want to die, instead giving them sleeping pills and letting them wait out the fire in an outbuilding. It was said that the devotees had managed to reimagine the Solar Temple's belief system to mean that they could still join the members who had gone before them, wherever they might now be. Some certainly felt confused that they hadn't been called to the original transits, and either way, they would have lost many of their closest friends and even family, as well as the entire structure of their leadership and belief system. In losing so much, perhaps they felt that this was the only option left to them. So the question really remains, how much responsibility for these deaths years later still lies with Luc Jouret and Joseph de Mambro? The total number killed in incidents relating to the Order of the Solar Temple was 74, which included 11 children. In the aftermath, France established a parliamentary commission on cults, and the Interministerial Observatory on Cults was established in May 1996, succeeded in 1998 by Mills, the interministerial mission in the fight against cults. This organisation received international criticism regarding potential violations of religious freedoms, and in 2002 became Miveludes, the current French government agency whose name in French stands for the Interministerial Mission for Monitoring and Combating Cultic Deviances. In 2001, France also established a new misdemeanour under law, targeted for application against cult leaders, called Ablu de Fablesse, or Abuse of Weakness. Switzerland also set up its first public information centre on religious cults in the aftermath of the Solar Temple murder-suicides. Gérard Ramsayer, Geneva's cantonal justice minister, said, quote, We don't want to infringe people's beliefs, but we do want people to be aware of the danger some of these groups pose.
You can support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon, merchandise, or a one-off donation. Further details at ltaspod.com, as well as perks like buttons, tote bags, stickers, and personal recordings. Our Patreon supporters regularly get early access to episodes of the show. Please consider mentioning this podcast to a friend if you feel they might appreciate it. If you have personally been affected by involvement in a cult, or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via www.cifs.org.au, and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via www.icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia, or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at www.iasp.info. Let's Talk About Sects is researched and presented by me, Sarah Steele. Sound design and music is by Joe Gould. Information sources are listed on our website at ltaspod.com. Thanks for listening, and hope you'll join me again next month. This month's podcast recommendation is Lainey Hobbs's new show, Crimes of Passion. The show looks at the relationship dynamics and psychology behind certain crimes, where a couple may look happy from the outside, but you don't really know what happens behind closed doors. Stick with me for a little promo now. Love happens suddenly. Maybe it's a new boyfriend who infatuates you or an adopted child you adore. A close friend you soon realize you can't live without. Suddenly, they're everything. Suddenly, you would kill for them, or they would kill for you. Suddenly, one of you is a criminal. I'm Lainey, and every week on ParCast's new podcast, Crimes of Passion, We tell true stories of relationships that turn dangerous. Our subjects might start as lovers, friends, or family, but by the end, there's a criminal and a victim. Along the way, we analyze the relationship dynamics and psychology that lead to violence, theft, and even murder. Crimes of Passion premieres February 20th with new episodes every Wednesday. Crimes of Passion is part of the Parcast Network and a production of Cutler Media. Crimes of Passion, the podcast where true love meets true crime. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.